You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 460 of this podcast. Today is August 29th, 2022, almost September, which means that we are pretty much two-thirds of the way through this year. That is all right with me. And, uh, you know, it hasn't been the worst of years. I think last year was harder, and the year before that was harder. And 2022 has just been kind of grindy, honestly. Leading up to the midterm elections, which I have high hopes for, I know a lot of Americans have high hopes for, there's really a lot riding on whether the midterms bring some more checks and balances to the political situation here in the U.S. And insofar as the political situation is affecting, continues to affect and be affected by the cultural situation in the U.S., I think a lot of us are hoping that there's actually a return to sanity. Joe Biden campaigned on a return to sanity. His presidency has not been a return to sanity. It's been more insanity. Uh, But it's just been this kind of gridlock in uh, a tense, insane dynamic that is not sustainable. And I hope that here in a couple of months, when we all go to the polls to vote in the midterms, uh, we get some relief nationwide. I really do. And I think there's countries around the world that would be glad to hear that we had uh, a Republican House and Senate again. I think that's the case. I think that's true. The Solomon Islands just turned away one of our Coast Guard boats trying to make a port of call, call to port, whatever you want to call it. Uh, There, basically, they were met with radio silence when they asked if they could come ashore. And that's unusual, except right now with China making inroads around the world, really pushing hard, really having invested in some obscure places that uh, wouldn't typically be open to so much investment from China. With that happening and us more or less asleep at the wheel, more concerned about transgenderism and abolishing genderism, uh, more concerned with banning internal combustion engines in 28% of the country come 2035, we're just not paying close attention. And that, that, that piece is a threat to our national security, by the way, because China dominates the cobalt and lithium mining in the world that is so necessary for the production of electric vehicles. A lot of people may not know that, but it's not as though you could just go in your backyard, anywhere will do, anywhere in the world is just as well. We're getting a lot of these materials from China. And insofar as China is making moves like they want war with us over Taiwan, if we don't back off and let them just take it. Uh, you know, we're, we're on the horns of a dilemma because either 
we back down and they get their way. And then they have control over the majority of the world's semiconductor manufacturing, which is also a threat to national security, global security. Uh, Or we throw down with them. And if we're in the process of converting our entire economy to vehicles and systems and equipment, which we need raw materials from them to be able to produce, there are some questions that need answered. There really are. There are hard questions that pertain to not just our own physical safety, but the physical safety of our families, our friends, our neighbors, our communities, our country. And I think the United States of America being such a big country and so many of us being more knowledgeable about pop culture than we are about who our elected representatives are and how our government actually functions, how it was designed to function, how it actually functions or dysfunctions, if you will. Saying do it for your country or anything like that is just lost on people these days. Now, if you were doing something for some celebrity they feel a strong emotional attachment to because they identify with this person, that would be one thing. But if you say do something for your country in a large portion of this country, that's just nonsense. That's no reason to do anything. Certainly no reason to get all worked up about whether we should be banning internal combustion engine vehicles or forcing the free market to no longer be free, to be constrained in its choices to electric vehicles. But we'll see, right? We'll see what happens between now and and November. We've got uh, a little bit of an October surprise on at least two fronts. One being the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, which is supposed to have a chilling effect on the rest of us. Whether you are conservative or progressive or independent, if you're concerned about what's being done by your government and you speak up, you might not just have your social media account flagged, suspended, or deactivated. You might not just get deplatformed. You might not just get your business boycotted or your place on some governing board or board of directors or uh, what have you, you know, removed because you're a liability. You might not just find yourself disinvited from Thanksgiving. The message of the Mar-a-Lago raid is pretty clearly that nobody who stands up to the radical left will be safe. Nobody who stands up to the deep state will be safe. They're hiring 87,000 IRS agents and putting a requirement in there for, I believe it was roughly half of them, to be ready to potentially fire uh, a, a deadly weapon at their countrymen and use physical force if necessary, in investigating or collecting debts or what have you. And when we know that several years ago under the Obama administration, the IRS was targeting conservatives for audits and basically being um, very partisan in the response to conservative organizations, conservative political action conservative uh, social action and education and outreach organizations, 501c3s in the U.S. When we know that, 
And then you see the IRS beefing up, and then you see this push to go and investigate small businesses that took out paycheck protection program uh, loans through COVID because the government shut everything down. Uh, it, it It's disconcerting, right? Like it's, it's disconcerting. But where we have a need for engagement from the church, I'm concerned that a couple of things are happening all at once that make it very difficult for Christians to get engaged and to talk about these things and to be responsive and to have conversations. You know, to do the research, for one, to be able to discuss these things openly with one another, even for Christians just to discuss these things with one another in a meaningful way, much less to be a part of the larger cultural conversation, to actually go and be a part of the public discourse. I'm very concerned by a few things that I'm seeing that don't add up to engagement by us or seeking the welfare of the city by us. You know, for one, I think that the post-war consensus and ecumenicism have done a great deal of damage to our ability to disagree at all about anything. This emphasis on the gospel and the marginalization of doctrinal differences for the past century. I was just reading about last night in this biography I'm borrowing from J.P. Chavez, The Life of Martin Lloyd-Jones, 1899 to 1981 by Dane H. Murray. And there's a chapter towards the end called The Crisis Years, and it's talking about the 1960s and some of the falling out between Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer, for instance, over positions taken with regards to ecumenicism. Also fallout between Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott over the same. And one of the big concerns that I have, regardless of whether I've read all I need to yet about Martin Lloyd-Jones and his engagement and John Stott's engagement and J.I. Packer's engagement, I'm concerned that we have this push over the past century to be so much in agreement for the sake of the gospel that we keep things superficial and we dumb it down, Uh, not just in conversation, but then at a certain point, it's use it or lose it. If you're dumbing it down in your conversation, you're also going to be dumbing it down even just in what you are personally thinking, how developed your own opinions are and how well-formed, and what are you reading, right? So just to give a little bit of backstory and to nod to our previous episode, I was talking in last episode about California's CARB, uh, Regulatory Board for California's Air Quality, essentially, standards. You know, California's Air Regulatory Board says no more internal combustion engine vehicles, by the year 2035. 14 other states in the US, just by default, adopt whatever it is that California says their regulations are going to be. So therefore, 14 states plus California, plus the District of Columbia, by the way, are just going to do whatever California does. So when you see California just went this way, what you should understand is actually 15 states, 30% of the country just went this way not just one gun, no, not, not just one state, right? Not just one state, 15 states just went this way, plus also the District of Columbia. 
So then I'm trying to engage in a conversation about this with a family member of mine who is not is not conservative, uh, maybe not progressive, but uh, definitely not conservative. And I'm pushing back on the idea that this is a proper function of government. And I'm pushing back based on having studied history, economics, business, political philosophy, studied the intersection of church and state. Because there is not an inseparable wall or an insurmountable wall or <laughs> impenetrable wall or, you know, there there is not any reason why the church and the state are as unrelated as we believe they ought to be or are or must be in our day. So I study that intersection because I believe it exists and it has for most of human history. And it still does, I'm convinced, exist today. But what that intersection looks like and who's camping out on that intersection, that's the question. There is an intersection, but who is there and what are they allowed to do and what are they allowed to say moreover? You know, what happens when I'm talking with a relative of mine about this decision to ban internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035? And I start referencing books that I've actually read. And then I'm told, you're gatekeeping the conversation. You always do this. You're gatekeeping the conversation because you've read all these books. Yes, yes, you're very smart. Yes, yes, you're very smart. Now shut up. Uh, You're very smart. You read all these books. Great. I haven't read those books. I'm not going to read those books. If you can't come up with an argument that doesn't reference those books, I don't want to hear it. I'm just going to assume that you don't have a good argument and you don't have a sound position and that I don't need to take seriously whatever it is that you think about this. Right? So I'm gatekeeping, but then actually I'm being gatekept right back. So I'm I'm accused of gatekeeping, I should say, because I'm recommending books and referencing books that I've read and in actuality, the conversation is being gatekept right back because essentially by virtue of my having read deeply, studied deeply these things, thought deeply about them, wanting to talk about them, having something to say, I'm being told that I'm not welcome in the conversation essentially. You must check what you know at the door because I don't recognize the legitimacy of having read these books. Well, so also I've seen that happen within the church in various ways. And I've seen that happen in conversation with fellow Christians in various ways. Seven years of blogging and podcasting and writing and then talking about the same has taught me a lot about how American Christians, not all, but many, particularly if they're of the non-denominational variety, particularly if they are of an ecumenical variety, prefer conversations about theology and philosophy and history and education and economics and politics to go. If they're willing to have them at all, they will always tell you that the gospel is more important than those topics. Uh, Even if nothing to the contrary was being claimed, there's a kind of when are you going to stop beating your wife sort of flavor to those reminders sometimes. When are you going to stop beating your wife? Well, I'm not. Aha, so you admit you Beating your wife? No, I'm not beating my wife. Yeah, you just admitted it. No, 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 no. You know, when are you going to stop beating your wife? Well, right now. Ah, so you admit you were <laughs> beating your wife. You, know, you, you have to reject 
the, the, the insinuation, if it's not true, if it is true that you've forgotten the gospel, if you ever talk about anything else, well, then let's take a long, hard look at that. Absolutely. But if the assumption is being made and it hasn't been questioned, I think we should look at where did that assumption come from? You know, what informed the assumption that I think is fairly modern and fairly relevant to all of these attempted discussions that kind of are dead on arrival with the non-denominational and ecumenical types? <laughs> I think the origin of the pushback to depth is a fear and anxiety on the part of Armenians that you literally are going to send people to hell if you offend them and they don't want to hear the gospel from you after you tell them what your opinion is on California banning internal combustion engine vehicles by the year 2035. They're not going to want to hear the gospel from you because you're not taking climate change seriously. Well, wait a second. Okay, let's talk about climate change. No, 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 no. No, don't talk about climate change, right? So then what happens is Christians either A, have to have these conversations in private, off to the side, discreetly behind closed doors, you know, looking both ways and then whispering in hushed tones, uh, or they're constantly under pressure to prove that they actually do take the gospel seriously. And that ought not to be so. I, I, I dare say that the greatest writers and thinkers of the past 2,000 years would not have developed if every time they had started talking about or working on something other than the gospel narrowly defined, they were having to answer questions about whether they care about people's eternal souls. Now, if there's something that's missing, it might be that we're finite creatures, right? It might be we can't talk about everything all at the same time. And also, it's needful to ask the very practical question of, are we called to only be talking about the gospel narrowly defined all the time? Is that what we're called to limit ourselves to? And if so, what does that do for vocation? You know, for instance, my wife has a side business, a side hustle, making children's clothes. Somebody reaches out and they say, hey, would you be able to uh, make my daughter a dress for Christmas coming up? And my wife says, sure. And, and then a conversation happens about, okay, what are you hoping? Do you have any ideas as far as what you would like it to look like? Colors, style, length, you know, how old is she? How tall is she? Things like that, you know, in order to do it well and to do it right. And then there would probably be some back and forth of, well, do you like this? Do you like that? And I could make it like this other dress I've made, or I could make it like this one in a picture. And at the end of it, that conversation helps to guarantee that the final product is well-made and serves the person who asked for it well. So, for instance, a mother asking my wife to make her daughter a Christmas dress will be served well if they can have a conversation about what sort of a dress and what will it look like and when do you need it by, etc., the little girl who's going to be wearing that dress is going to be well served if my wife is able to ask important practical questions. How old is she? How tall is she? How big is she? Does it fit? Do you need me to make any adjustments? You know, in my line of work, I work in automation and systems integration specifically. 
And if I can't talk with people who are calling me to Comtest devices, if I can't ask them questions about anything but their spiritual condition and their eternal soul and where they go to church, and if I can't ask them questions except about whether they'd like to hear about my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I can't do well in my vocation. I I can't. I can't serve them well in my vocation. And yet we know from the scriptures, from a careful reading of the whole counsel of God, that that's part of our Christian testimony, to do our job well, to do a, a vocational job, to mind our own business, working with our hands, aspiring to live a quiet life so that we might be dependent on no one. That is part of maintaining a good reputation with outsiders, having a good testimony, and protecting ourselves and the household of faith from unnecessary persecution. Now, if you still get persecuted, but you were doing a fine bang-up job in your nine-to-five or in your small business or in your side hustle, you get persecuted and you were being totally above board, well then, you're being persecuted for righteousness sake. I would say if they know you're a Christian and they're trying to nitpick on something and it was really a stretch, they're just looking for something. It's a fishing expedition. They're looking for something to hurt you in your providing for your family, to try and push you out of the public square. Well, then I would say you're being persecuted for righteousness sake, because it's not that you're doing a fine job. It's not that. If your politics were other, or if you made no claim to religious faith whatsoever, they would celebrate you. And that's the test. When you see someone else doing well because they played by the rules and you're doing the same thing or better and you're ostracized, you're excluded, you're marginalized, you're pushed out, you're punished, there are little procedural things that are done to dissuade you from speaking up next time or showing up next time, you can safely assume that the distinctions which don't have to do with what's usually celebrated when you're doing well on those, the distinctions that have to do with your religious differences and downstream of your religious differences, your cultural differences and downstream of your cultural differences, your political differences, those are what you're actually being punished for. Those are what you're actually being persecuted for. And we have to be wise about that. We, we really do. You know, let's say you're a baker or a photographer for special events in the state of Colorado, you might get taken not just to local court. You might not just have a complaint filed against you. You might not just get a a bad Yelp review. You might get taken all the way to the Supreme Court of these United States on the charge that you discriminated if you're a Christian and you said, I can't in good conscience help you celebrate this gay marriage, so-called, which is actually, in in actuality, it's, it's an abolition of marriage, really, truly. Margaret Sanger was the instrumental figure in the sexual revolution. If you really go back, read George Grant's Killer Angel, Margaret Sanger at least helped a great deal in promoting the ideas of the sexual revolution. And one of the big Uh, motivators for her with the sexual revolution was that essentially it would 
abolish the institution of marriage. She didn't want to be a mother, and she didn't want to be married, really, truly. Uh, but she wanted all of society to affirm that she wanted to be uh, all about herself. And so then the way to do that is to convince all of society to be all about ourselves. And gay marriage, really, truly, is a fulfillment of that. The transgender moment right now is a fulfillment of that. And it's turning in a very uh, surprising for some dark direction. It's turning into something a lot more sinister in recent years, but it always was going to go here and it will go still farther places. It will go all the way to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the natural outcome. Romans chapter one is the natural outcome. We become wise in our own eyes. God gives us up to a reprobate mind. We become futile in our thinking. In other words, we stop being able to think. We stop being able to reason. We become unreasonable. Well, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is to let your reasonableness be known to all. But as those who are perishing resent those who have eternal life, who are looking forward to it, who are acting in a chipper way, like they're expecting to live forever, who are not afraid of tomorrow, but trust the good Lord for his provision, his protection, his promises to be kept without fail. As those who are perishing increasingly resent those who are going to live forever, they will increasingly look for ways to settle the score. And increasingly, it won't matter how well those who are imperishable by God's grace perform. And so the church needs to be careful with this whole ecumenical business, because if the ecumenical business is predicated on Arminianism, then you will say nothing and do nothing unless you're sure it meets with the approval of the world on the claim that we have to be sensitive to truth seekers in our midst, lest we send them to hell, lest they make the wrong choice about salvation and we send them to hell. Well, in that case, before you know it, you're pretty much just a social club that looks just like the world, but with a little bit of churchianity thrown in, a little bit of Christianized language thrown in. And that's what Unfortunately, we see with a lot of megachurches, have your best life now. Have your cake and eat it too. It's all about you, you, you. The Arminians, if they're bought into this whole ecumenical business, if they're bought into the seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive trend still, will be conformed to the pattern of this world. And then what will happen and what has happened and what is happening looks an awful lot like some of the New Testament accounts of synagogues not tolerating these men who were preaching Christ in their synagogues, not tolerating them. And look at what happens when certain worthless men and uh, angry Jews in Thessalonica hauled converts in their city before the city council. These men, they say, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they claim that they have another king besides Caesar. We have no king but Caesar is a very political statement. We have no king but Caesar. In other words, we will not tolerate you having, as we call it, divided loyalties. And yet for the mature Christian, for the intentional Christian, for the Christian who might, for instance, read Augustine, 
to say we must obey God rather than men when in those two options are mutually exclusive is not at all divided loyalties. Rather, there's a hierarchy. The separation of church and state, as discussed by the founding fathers of this republic, that separation was supposed to protect the church from unnecessary interference from the state. The state could not come in and say, you're not allowed to hold public office unless you hold to the English Book of Common Prayer. That had happened in England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales recently to push out nonconformists from not just the pulpits, but also from public office and from the universities. We see the left doing that in our day. That exact thing is being done by the left in our day. Except instead of the common prayer book, the book of English common prayer, we see other mechanisms, other litmus tests. What they really amount to is ideological conformity, and the nonconformists are not welcome. But the ecumenicals will say, we must have unity at all costs, and essentially doctrine be damned. And those who are serious about doctrine be damned. Really, truly. Now, that's a problem. And the curious thing is, we have an equal and opposite reaction. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We have an equal and opposite reaction, which I would say is just as dangerous. And that is from those who only know how to see problems in the ecumenical movement, who only know how to see problems when someone has liberal theology or progressive theology, who only know how to see problems when it's the other guys. And so there's this trend on the internet in, let's say, the past decade or so in particular, in my familiarity, towards discernment ministry or discernment ministry blogging, or you'll see YouTube channels that are predicated on this, the doctrinal watchdog, the Bible-thumping wingnut, et cetera, et cetera. Some would say my podcast goes in that category of online polemics. And actually, someone did say that just this past week. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, you, you and your extended family, I mean, you kind of have a penchant for polemics, it seems like, compared with a lot of other families. And that took me by surprise. It caught me off guard because uh, I don't think of myself as a polemicist. I just think of myself as a Christian. And where rebukes are appropriate in the scriptures, I want rebukes to be appropriate in my attitude, in my way of thinking, my way of relating, in my Christian life and thought. Where correction is appropriate in the scriptures, that needs to be lived out in my Christian life and thought. That needs to come out in my speech, and it needs to come out in the podcast. It needs to come out in the way I talk with my children, the way I relate to myself when I look in the mirror. If correction is a biblical thing in the life of the Christian, well, I want to live the life of a Christian, and I want to make room for correction. If exhortation is appropriate, well, then where's the exhortation? If encouragement is appropriate in the scriptures, well, then where's the encouragement? And the troubling thing is, because so many of us are unfamiliar on the one hand that I just talked about with rebuke, with correction, 
with being against anything for fear of disrupting unity, to be at all about that comes as quite a surprise and shocking and disturbing and disruptive and upsetting. It's very upsetting because it might damage this thing they were told to hold most dear, which is unity. And on the other hand, among the polemics, ministry, discernment, ministry, blogger, crowd, for the encouragement and the exhortation to happen seems like it, it's unnatural or it doesn't come easily. Or it's only encouragement. It's only speaking well when they're talking amongst themselves about one another. If you're in with that crowd, you can do no wrong. If you're on the outside of that crowd, you can do no right. Everything is sus, as the kids say these days. And I think these are not good. I think these are equal and opposite reactions, and I think they're equally dangerous and liable to reinforce one another ad infinitum unless someone steps in and says, that's not an okay way to relate. That's not an okay way to relate. That's not balanced. Now, I was, I was disturbed, I'll be honest, in part when I was told that I have a penchant for polemics. My podcast features a lot of polemics. My conversation, my reading carries a lot of polemical qualities. I was taken aback at the thought that I would be lumped in with others who make much of polemics. They think polemics is something that they can build their whole Christian life and thought around exclusively, it seems. And yet for my family, my extended family on my dad's side especially in particular, and for me as a member of that extended mullet family, to be regarded as polemical, uh, you know, I, I, I don't quite know how to take that. I, I've got to think about it. I've got to study. I've got to dig in. And so I looked it up, right? Like, okay, well, what is polemics anyways? Not what is this guy said polemics is, and then he excuses his own bad behavior, his rudeness, his ugly way of relating to people. No, no. What is it actually? What is it definitionally? And is it okay? Or can it be okay? Is it one of those things where it really depends on how you use the thing? Or does it need to be repented of? And I, just to be clear, I don't think it needs to be repented of, from what I'm reading, to engage in some polemics. But I think if that's all you know how to do, if that's all you ever do, that's not so good. So let's just go ahead and read from Wikipedia. Why not? This is the common encyclopedia in our day. <clears throat> a polemic is contentious rhetoric intended to support a specific position by forthright claims and to undermine the opposing position. The practice of such argumentation is called polemics, which are seen in arguments on controversial topics. A person who writes polemics or speaks polemically is called a polemicist. The word derives from ancient Greek, polemikos, warlike hostile, from polemos, war. Polemics often concern questions in religion or politics. A polemical style of writing was common in ancient Greece, as in the writings of the historian Polybius, who I just read the histories of, by the way. Polemic, again, became known and common in medieval and modern times, early modern times. Since then, famous polemicists have included satirist Jonathan Swift, French Enlightenment writer, historian, and philosopher Voltaire, 
Christian anarchist Leo Tolstoy, socialist philosophers Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, novelist George Orwell, playwright George Bernard Shaw, communist revolutionary Vladimir Lenin, psycholinguist Noam Chomsky, social critics Christopher Hitchens and Peter Hitchens, existential philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, and Friedrich Nietzsche, author of On the Genealogy of Morality, a Polemic. Polemical journalism was common in continental Europe when libel laws were not as stringent as they are now. To support study of 17th to 19th century controversies, a British research project has placed online thousands of polemical pamphlets from that period. Discussions of atheism, humanism, and Christianity have remained open to polemic into the 21st century. So there you have it, right? There's there's polemics. That's polemics. That's what it is. Essentially, as I'm reading this, correct me if I'm wrong, polemics is war. Polemics is war. Now then, if that's correct, working off of that assumption, is it ever appropriate to wage war verbally? Is it okay with my writing and with my speaking for me to wage war? According to Ecclesiastes, there is a time for war. And I read that and I think, okay, cool. There's a time for war. There's a time for war. Also, Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for peace. So my concern would be, do we recognize when it is a time for war and when it is a time for peace? That's my big question. That's my big question. For both the ecumenical types who want peace in our time, like a lot of ecclesiological Neville Chamberlains perhaps, do they recognize that there is a time for war? And for the online discernment ministry blogger types, Do you recognize that there's ever a time for peace? Or do you think that peace is only ever appropriate among those who are on the same side as you? Honest question. I would contend, and even there, that word contend means to fight in some sense. So here's my polemic against polemicists (laughs) and against those who don't think there's ever a time for polemicists. My contention would be, my polemic against both kinds, that we are missing out and the church is missing out if we only ever recognize a time for war or we only ever recognize a time for peace. In reading about ecumenicism here lately, for instance, I'm disturbed by the insinuation that the Protestant Reformation was one great big mistake. No one should have ever left Rome. Everyone should have stayed seems to be a kind of insinuation there. The idea that Rome and Constantinople split ecclesiologically, the Eastern Orthodox Church broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, that that was a mistake. That should have never happened. They should have stayed together incontrovertibly. For one, I don't see how that necessarily follows, necessarily, that all parties are concerned with maintaining unity at the expense of doctrine, all other concerns are secondary or tertiary or totally irrelevant in the interest of unity. If such were the case, 
it would be very odd that we find the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed in the first five centuries, defining who is and is not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and deny these things. That's the claim that's being made. That's the statement position that's being taken. You cannot be a Christian and deny these things. You must believe these things in order to be a Christian. That's Now, there's more you should believe besides just this, but you must believe at least this about God and who he is. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with these attributes. The polemicists who only ever recognize a time for war seem to me to always be looking for reasons to keep on waging war. And I think part of that is because they think they're good at it. Whether they're as good at it as they think they are, they think they're good at it. And the folks who are for ecumenicism and being seeker-friendly and let's just bury all the hatchets in the interest of unity are taking a good thing, which is peace, but they want to have it on any terms whatsoever. So they will never run out of excuses for bad behavior or for bad theology or bad doctrine. That is not so good. They think they're so good at making peace. But my question would be, can peace with God be maintained when that's your approach to anyone and everyone who claims to be a Christian? Can peace with God be maintained? Shouldn't we prefer, first and foremost, peace with God? Just like we must obey God rather than men when the two are mutually exclusive. Must we not also say we must have peace with God rather than men when the two are mutually exclusive? I say yes. I say yes. Absolutely. And none of this is to say that there are no rules, there's no standard, there shouldn't be any ethical considerations with regards to pursuit of unity or making war rhetorically or otherwise. But that's just it. I think that's part of what comes of recognizing, like Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace. That's part of what comes (laughs) with at least admitting that it's not always one and it's not always the other. Then you start having to dig in and figure out, okay, when is it the one and when is it the other? Well, if they're shooting at you, might it might be <laughs> a sign that it's a time for war, right? If that sign is shooting at you, might be a time for war. Or can you make peace? Can you say, hey, ho, 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 hold, 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 ceasefire. We're on the same team, actually. Conversely, just because somebody is claiming that they're a friend, that doesn't mean that they're actually a friend. Profuse are the kisses of a friend. No, that's not what it says. No, it says profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so in some sense, I think the ecumenical movement has robbed us of a needed vitality that comes from challenging each other. And yes, I think conversely, insofar as the polemicists try and make war on anyone and everyone, who's not for making war on anyone and everyone all the time along very rigid, narrow, ideological and theological and doctrinal lines, not recognizing secondary issues, never having met secondary issues. I think they have also robbed their churches of a great deal of vitality and health because you need people who are able to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Yes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yes, blessed are you when men revile you, speak all manner of evil against you for his name's sake. Yes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yes, but part of righteousness means we are not just firing indiscriminately because we really love a good fight. No. And also, conversely, it doesn't mean that you're trying to bandage up your enemies necessarily from a doctrinal standpoint because you want to establish some goodwill. No, peace with God first. Peace with God first. Thereafter, peace with man. And only is it possible to have peace with man if first we have peace with God. And that's, I think, something that's missed. I think that's something that's missed by the ecumenical types who basically say doctrines are not that important compared with unity. Real peace with one another is just an illusion if we don't have peace with God truly. Continuing on some of the history of polemics here in this Wikipedia article. In ancient Greece, writing was characterized by what Geoffrey Lloyd and Nathan Sivan called strident adversariality and rationalistic aggressiveness, summed up by McClinton as polemic. For example, the ancient historian Polybius practiced quite bitter, self-righteous polemic against some 20 philosophers, orators, and historians. And I can vouch for that, at least from the histories. Polemical writings were common in medieval and early modern times. During the Middle Ages, polemic had a religious dimension, as in Jewish texts written to protect and dissuade Jewish communities from converting to other religions. Medieval Christian writings were also often polemical, for example, in their disagreements on Islam or in the vast corpus aimed at converting the Jews. Martin Luther's 95 Thesis nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg was a polemic launched against the Catholic Church. Robert Carlyle's 1619 Defense of the New Church of England and Diatribe Against the Roman Catholic Church, Britain's Glory, or an allegorical dream with the exposition thereof containing the heathens' infidelity in religion took the form of a 250-line poem. Major political polemicists of the 18th century include Jonathan Swift with pamphlets such as his A Modest Proposal and Edmund Burke with his attack on the Duke of Bedford. In the 19th century, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' 1848 Communist Manifesto was extremely polemical. Frederick Engels' famous work, Anti-During, was also a polemic against Eugen During. In the 20th century, George Orwell's Animal Farm was a polemic against totalitarianism, in particular of Stalinism, in the Soviet Union. According to McClinton, other prominent polemicists of the same century include such diverse figures as Herbert Marcuse, Noam Chomsky, John Pilger, and Michael Moore. In 2007, Brian McClinton argued in Humani that anti-religious books such as Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion are part of the polemic tradition. In 2008, the humanist philosopher A.C. Grayling published a book Against All Gods, Six Polemics on Religion, and an Essay on Kindness. So here we have polemics being used through the ancient period, medieval period, early modern period, and then we come to the modern day, and polemics has given way. And I think part of the reason polemics has given way is because Edward Bernays came up with the soft sell public relations 
mass marketing, manipulative way of trying to convince people of certain things. Mass media, amusing ourselves to death, like Neil Postman writes about. These are now giving way to nudge theory increasingly. Behavioral economics, let's find ways to manipulate people through persuasive design, persuasive technology. Let's not know what to do with polemics because we're never used to somebody directly stating their position. We're used to everything being very subtle and underhanded and deceitful, dare I say it. We're not used to things being direct and straightforward. And I think that causes two problems. I think it causes problems on the one hand because the ecumenical thing is predicated on a lot of the soft sell. And on the other hand, I think the polemics folk really are not exposed to good examples to follow. I mean, they're doing some of that soft sell, subtle way of marketing thing, but they're not nearly so good at it as they want to believe that they are. And their audience is different than it has been throughout history. Their audience doesn't know what to do with it for the most part, except to embrace it and start talking that way too. In a sense, yes, I guess you could call me a polemicist, but by golly, I don't want to just be attacking and making war all the time. I want to seek peace and pursue it when it depends on me. In so much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men, we're commanded in the scriptures. Yes, we're called to contend for the faith. Also, we're commanded to not be contentious and to have nothing to do with a contentious person. I don't want to be a contentious person, but we need to calibrate our expectations. I have to calibrate my expectations of what other people can handle. And I think to some extent, everyone, all of us need to calibrate our expectations of what should be expected from God's servant. And this really is the lion's share of why I'm doing what I'm doing. I am not, to be clear, I am not trying to embarrass anyone I'm talking about personal conversations had with, first and foremost, what I want is to be balanced. And if I can tell you some happy things about my wife sewing some clothes, great, I want to do that. If I can tell you, hey, we're working on some debate in our home as to social media, my son wants Facebook, and I'm not so sure that's a good idea. You know, it's, it's a civil conversation, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows. If I can say, hey, here's some struggles that we have. Here also are some ways we're doing well. If I can do that on a personal level, I also want to do that when I scale up into these other spheres where we have responsibilities, not just seeing what happens in the four walls of my house as being my business, not just seeing for you what happens in the four walls of your house as being your business, but seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. Jeremiah 29. What is our business? What is the church's business? Is our business to only preach the gospel, make converts, make disciples, and have unity and do nothing else? That's all you do. You don't attend to any practical concerns at all for fear of being accused of being carnal, fleshly, earthly-minded, or... Do you study diligently and pray and try to have earnest, honest conversations with others who are doing likewise in the household of faith 
towards the end of being salt of the earth that has not lost its savor, being the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So in closing, as I'm winding down here, a couple of just personal things, personal matters of business. One, I got a brainwave this morning as I was listening to Jordan B. Cooper's analysis of Michael Heiser's methodology found in such books as Supernatural and The Unseen Realm, both of which I've read, both of which I enjoyed actually immensely. I don't have to agree with everything he said in order to enjoy them. I probably agreed with the majority of what I read in those books though. Just just being honest, I think his perspective pretty well captures mine for the most part with some qualifiers. But if that makes me weird, oh well. Read Augustine. <laughs> read Augustine. If you think that's super weird, read Augustine, City of God, and get back with me. By all means. He gets into this as well, but that's not my main point. My main point is, I was listening to Dr. Jordan B. Cooper, his YouTube channel, and he mentions, for anybody who'd like to partner with him, support what he's doing, support him in producing content like this, here's the link to his Patreon account feel free to go and make a contribution. And there was something about the way he said it, the way he delivered it, which to back up a little bit, I hate marketing. I have not marketed my book hardly at all, except on this podcast. And other than that, I hate asking people for money and I hate trying to sell things. And I like just doing a good job and focusing on what do you need and what does it cost to get it for you? And if I need some money from you. Okay, great. But otherwise, I don't want to talk about money with you. Let's talk about economics on the macro. And I'll be honest with you about personally how decisions that are being made with regards to the economy, political decisions that are being made with regards to the economy are affecting my bottom line because that's my business and your business. That's part of what we're doing here. We're talking about inflation. Well, we're talking about our business. Me being able to send my wife to the grocery store to get groceries is my business, but it's our business when you're voting for a joker who's going to make that harder. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) But the idea occurred to me, maybe I should check out Patreon. Maybe I should go set up something. And so I haven't published it yet. It's not live. I was just poking around trying to see, hey, is this something I could do in good conscience? Set up a Patreon account. And I've got it started And I'm asking some people for advice, some key people, what they think, if they think that's a good idea, if they think it's a bad idea, how to go about it, if it's a good idea, is there a right way to go about it? Surely so. Do they have any advice on the right way to go about it? If so. But I wanted to tell you about it because I think this might be worth exploring and putting out there. And you'll hear more from me in the future, in the near future. Uh, about it, especially if I go that route. Or if I don't, I'll explain to you why I didn't go that route. If I do end up launching this Patreon account, uh, it'll be a a way for you and others, potentially, uh, some of my other audiences besides just the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast to support what I'm doing here. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's something to keep an eye out for and more to come. Stay tuned. In other news, 
I think I'm going to get back into doing reaction videos on YouTube. I put that away for the past year or so. It was about this time last year that my wife got COVID. I ended up staying home from work for two weeks. And during that two weeks of quarantine, we kind of ran out of things to do at a certain point. And I thought, you know, what? I'm just going to try making some YouTube reaction videos. Just, just a project to try out. And I haven't really done any past that week of COVID. But as we're coming up on one year since then, and as I have a new work schedule that allows me to re-examine, dust off, uh, revisit that, I think it would be fun to, in fact, I'm getting some good advice from my cousin Micah in that regard, especially if I'm going to go the route of creating a Patreon account, I could drive potential new audience members to this podcast, to the book writing with YouTube reaction videos. And it would be fun. I think they're fun. I enjoyed making them for that one week that I worked on them. And then I went back to work and had catching up to do and then changed jobs and haven't been back to it since. But my kids, right? That's a, that's another motivator for me. My kids enjoy the reaction videos. Every now and then I'll catch them going back and watching some of the ones that I recorded like a year ago. And they say they're good. And if my kids say they're good and they enjoy them, uh, maybe I should revisit that. So stay tuned for that as well. If you were watching those reaction videos on YouTube, I think they're going to come back. There'll be more of them. There, there will be more of them. If you weren't checking out any of those, you can go check them out. Uh, the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show has a YouTube channel of sorts, which might need dusted off and updated. But... I think that's all the time I've got for this episode. That's enough for now. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.